Strap in, it's episode 120 of the Divorce Resource Guide podcast, and today we're going to talk about one woman's heroic escape from an abusive marriage. Welcome to the Divorce Resource Guy podcast with Jason Lavoie, aka the Divorce Resource Guy, a former divorce attorney turned divorce coach, talking about all things divorce, including the good, bad, and the ugly from an attorney's point of view. Remember, you're not alone. And now, your host, Jason Lavoie. Welcome, everybody, to the 120th episode of the podcast. I can't believe we've made it this far. 120 episodes seemed like uh, a never-ending possibility when I started at number one. But here we are, plugging along, and I hope you are a subscriber so you get all new episodes when they come out. Today, my guest, a very personal guest who's going to share her own personal struggle leaving an abusive uh, marriage, Conchin Bhaskar. Uh, she's an Indian-American, a first-time author. She holds a master's degree in social work and a certificate in life coaching. Uh, she's also a certified business coach, um, and she's an av- certified advocate speaker and coach for victims and survivors of domestic violence. Conchin lives in Chicago, uh, and you can learn more about her on her website, conchinbaskar.com, um, and you can check the show notes for the spelling, uh, but we're going to talk about her book, Leaving, which discusses her personal journey and how she set herself free from an abusive marriage. So I think it's something that everybody um, should be inspired by, and if you find yourself in an abusive relationship or marriage, then maybe you can take some of what Conchin has done for herself and apply it to your situation too. So let's, let me introduce to you, Conchin Bhaskar. Conchin, so glad to have you on the show. How are you today? I'm very good. So tell everybody a little bit about yourself who may not be familiar with who you are and kind of, you know, your career path to get you where you are today. Well, I have been born and brought up in New Delhi, India, in a very progressive environment. I would say I had educated parents who were working professionals. Uh, the environment at home was very you know, tender and blissful and a lot of nurturing happened. I have uh, three other siblings. One, of course, passed away during COVID, my elder brother in India. Um, but uh, we three are there. And uh, we had a lovely relationship of warmth and togetherness in that environment. So uh, according to me, uh, when I saw my parents together as partners and as uh, you know, uh, both being together, I thought that is what marriage meant, uh, to be respectful, to be compassionate, and uh, to be partners to each other. I was uh, went to college in India, and then I went to my master's degree also in India. I did master's in social work. And uh, immediately after that, I got into an arranged marriage this, uh, you know, when I got married, I thought he was a person that I wanted to get married to. He was a very deceptive social charmer and a bright young person. Um, And uh, he turned out to be a different person when I got married to him. He was a narcissist, alcoholic, and a violent person. Uh, And, uh, you know, I had to be with him. I was pretty trapped. 
um, under his power and control and the atrocities and the torment that I had to go through, I almost became a victim, so to say, at the time, um, you know, a weak and a frail and a lost and numb victim, as a typical victim is. I was very fearful of him and um, I was also ashamed of the society and uh, having the guilt of the lawmakers at the time because nobody came forward to help me or protect me and my three children. Uh, but, uh, you know, life went on. I had to escape. Uh, I was blessed with three children in the meantime. Uh, and uh, it was difficult to plan that escape being a victim. So very soon I started to transform myself into a resilient person, a resilient fighter, I would call it, because uh, right. in India it was pretty difficult to ask for a divorce, uh, especially a woman going to the court and asking for a divorce was a big no-no. I mean, people would question me, the lawyers would question me as to why would you ask for a divorce? I mean, if he drinks, that's uh, not a crime. So why would you ask for a divorce? And then when I said that he hits me after drinking and he loses his control, uh, they said, uh, but this is a matter that you can sort out at home. Wow. Why would you still want to divorce him? And, uh, you know, some of the lawyers told me that if you divorce him, then you are going to lose your the custody of your children. It could be one child or all the three children. Uh, if he proves that I had a mental issue or there was an infidelity issue, which is pretty easy to prove, um, especially in India or anywhere for that matter. I mean, mental health, even here, uh, you know, women who go through these atrocities, they take medication, antidepressants and whatnot, and they behave different than a normal person. And it's easy to prove that they have got mental health issues, um, which if proven can uh, take away the custody from them. And infidelity again, I mean, how, how bad or how difficult is it to prove that? You just need a few pictures here and there, you know, standing with a colleague, sitting with in a bar with a friend or whosoever. So um, I knew that it will be difficult for me to take a divorce from this person. I pleaded him to get medical help for himself and uh, go to a therapist but he refused to do it. So finally, as my final straw, I left India and I escaped to US. So, so let's talk about this. There's, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, yeah. and, and I know you wrote your book, Leaving, How I Set Myself Free from an Abusive Marriage. Um, and that's yes. gonna be the, the focus of our conversation today. Um, very compelling story of your life. So, I'm always interested in in how things came to be and unfolded. So let me start off. You mentioned that your upbringing was a positive one. Your parents were both nurturing and, and very uh, positive towards raising you as a child, right? Were were was your parents' marriage an arranged marriage? So it was a combination of both love and arranged marriage because uh, my dad had just returned from Iran. He was uh, there for a few years 
uh, during, you know, when he was growing up. And he came back to India almost at the age of 19 um, to, you know, visit his mother. Uh, and he saw my, he saw my mom uh, going to college. And that was kind of love at first sight for him. He kept watching her like the next four or five days. And here my mother went to her mother, my grandma, and said, who's this handsome looking guy, a new face in the in, in our street. And uh, she said that, oh, he's uh, come to visit his mom. And then it so happened, if you know uh, about the partition that happened between Pakistan and India. So it was that time when the partition was happening. And overnight before my dad could approach my mother's mom or tell his mom that this is the girl I want to marry, uh, the whole violence and the mob murders and all that started to happen. Uh, it was very violent. The, you know, the mobs were violent uh, between India and Pakistan and uh, the partition happened. So my dad helped my mother and uh, their, her mother to go to a refugee camp in India where all the Hindus went and all the Muslims, they migrated to Pakistan. So uh, in that camp, my dad went and asked for my mother's hand from my grandmother. Wow. So it's a it's a love and an arranged. So you know, it's a, it was a combination of both. Right, and I, and I guess you tell me. I, to me, that that sounds like a pretty rare occurrence when when you have a custom and a tradition of arranged marriages that you, you have two people that also fall in love with each other at that same time. Um, right. So that is, that's an amazing story. So, yeah. so when it was time from you, how old were you when you got married? I was 22. And so at that time, did your parents put a lot of pressure on you um, to marry your husband? How did you meet him? No, they, there was no pressure on me. Um, in fact, when I was to be getting married, they'd ask me, if I had a person in mind and uh, I was in college when I was there, I, I actually moved in groups with, you know, boys and girls all moving together in groups. And uh, I may have had infatuation for a couple of people, a couple of boys, uh, which I talk about in, the, in my book, um, but there was no uh, hard communication done from my side or, sharing or telling them that I was in awe of them uh, kind of situation. I think I was maybe shy at that time and I did not approach them, but uh, I did not even mention that to my parents only because I was getting married at 22 and a boy's age at 22 was very young. Um, none of my classmates were employed at the time. They were also looking for jobs after they graduated. Right. So. So I didn't think about anybody at the time that I should be getting married to. So I told them that, no, you know, go the, the route that any parent goes for arranged marriages. And uh, at that time, it had become popular to give a matrimonial column in the national newspaper. Like on a weekend, they had a matrimonial column coming, wherein you would put your ad and say, oh, uh, wanted a... Uh, a suitable boy for a five feet, two inches, masters in social work, girl, you know, um, either a doctor or an engineer or any profession um, is okay. And 
caste no bar because that was one of my things that I was not particular about any caste because India has a solid caste system. Right. Uh, yeah. So I belong to a Brahmin family. So, but I was not particular that I had to marry a Brahmin boy. It was my uh, prerequisite, so to say, was uh, an intelligent uh, man who, you know, who was uh, bright and educated and uh, independent. And, 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 and right. Yeah. So how so, did he, how did you meet? So how who put you in touch with him originally? So uh, it's a long story though, but I'll just tell you in brief that uh, my ad was given in the newspaper. Then we got lot many letters, and uh, while we were going through the letters, I still remember very vividly. My dad was sitting on the sofa. I was sitting next to him, and there was this file box lying on the table. Uh, my mom was sitting opposite us, and we were going through the letters. And I somehow took this one letter in my hand and uh, I read it. There was just about four lines in there and uh, I put it under the box. So see, saying that I, you know, we don't need to contact these people. Um, and the ones that we were selecting were going into the box. So, but my dad uh, kept on picking that letter under the box every time. And I said, but dad, I told you, we don't want to reply to these people. And my dad was like, no, but they're Brahmins. And I said, what do you mean? I said, cast no bar. And he said, no, but Brahmins are very considerate people. They are not going to pick you up or kidnap you. Let's <laughs> reply to the letter. And here I am today. So, so, so no kidnapping. So, that's a, that's a, a high bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So, but it so happened that one of the neighbors whom we did not know much, who resided in the same campus as we did, they approached us about this particular letter and the boy in that letter and said that they knew the family very well and they had called these neighbors to approach us and uh, say that they liked the details of the girl. Okay. So, yeah, any unmarried person we call girl and boy, so that's why I'm referring to it as girl. So, um, and, you know, the very next day they came to see me. So the arranged marriage goes like that, that, you know, the girl sits in a room and the boy's family come and sees her. And uh, if they're a little bit more modern like we were, uh, they're allowed to go and sit separately in a room to talk. And uh, if the girl is liked by the boy, in my case, even I had to say, to say that, you know, I like or I don't like. Okay. Um, and then they can meet with each other a couple of times before you get engaged or you decide to get engaged. So that's what exactly happened. Um, he came, uh, the boy came with his family, his two brothers and one sister and dad. Um, he had lost his mother many years back. Um, and I was there with my parents and, you know, we sat, we looked at each other and uh, uh, my parents said, do you want to talk in the other room? And we went to the other room and we talked with each other for just like maybe 20 minutes or so. Um, and his first question to me was, what are your aspirations? And that got me, you know, I was like, oh, he's concerned about my aspirations before saying anything else. So that means he's 
going to be, you know, a person who will be responsible and looking after me. Seems like a good and, a good question, right? Usually yeah. a narcissist or a narcissistic type of person, you know, they yeah. only care about themselves and it's all right. about them. So, right. Yeah. Um, but he was a very intelligent narcissist. <laughs> they usually he are. Knew, <laughs> he, knew, he knew what to ask me to buy me, you know. Uh, because just before that, there were uh, two more uh, proposals that had come. And the first boy that had come to see me was, uh, his first question was, do you like Chinese food? And I said, no, I, this is not the guy I want to, you know, go with uh, because his uh, priority perhaps is food. I mean, I was young. So whatever, uh, you know, I was just concluding things and I said, no. And then the second boy came who was in or me, he was a tall, nice, handsome looking guy, and I really liked him. And he liked me. Uh, but, you know, as destiny, we say, or the, the blueprint is there. So my dad got up next day and he says, no, he's in army and he flies helicopters also. He may have an unnatural death. So I am not going to give my daughter. Oh, wow. So, so, so you're... Your husband was charming at first, um, yes. right? He said all the right things. Um, yes. It's like you said, he was an intelligent narcissist. Um, so how long was it until now that you look back and, and you recount your, your history with him, how long was it before the signs really started appearing that he wasn't who you thought he was? So we quoted for six months or so, and we wrote letters to each other. He was staying almost uh, 600 or 700 kilometers away from New Delhi in a remote area. Uh, and uh, he was working there for the last seven years. Um, and uh, so six months went on very well. It was hunky-dory, romantic. Everything was great. I didn't pick up anything. Uh, but... Immediately after the marriage, I think it was the fourth week that he hit me first time. Four, Four weeks week after marriage. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and what happened in that situation specifically? So we got married uh, in the beginning, first week of December. And it, it was 31st December night when we, you know, normally have that party, New Year's party and everything. Um, and uh, we were in a party in his office, uh, colleagues and everybody was there. Um, we both were there and he started to drink. He had not touched the drink in the last three weeks. So I didn't even know that he drinks. Uh, he had avoided that, but he smoked a lot. I mean, he was a chain smoker. Um, and uh, in that party, he got drunk. And uh, he, you know, when it was time for us to come back home, uh, he was totally drunk. He could not walk. And he had a tiff with another guy or colleague uh, outside. And when I went out uh, hearing the noise, I saw that my husband was in uh, tussle with another man. And, you know, they were grabbing each other's collars and fighting with each other and name calling. And I got very nervous. I, I didn't know what to do. And then one couple whom I had uh, talked to during the, the party, they came forward and helped me, uh, you know, give him to me, dragged him out and gave it give, give his hand to me. And I just walked. I just walked all the way to home. Um, yeah, in the almost, uh, you know, middle of the night. And um, I, I came home because that's the only one thing that I wanted to do, to just go home. 
um, and I came home um, and uh, he just, uh, you know, removed his pants and shirts. He was in undergarments and he started to look for something very frantically, you know, opening the drawers and closing them and the cupboard and under the bed and everything. And I was like, what is he searching for? And uh, I didn't know he was searching for another bottle of whiskey. So, um, and he told me, give me a peg. And, you know, I didn't know at that time what peg meant. That is a measure of how much is to be poured. What is it, a peg? Uh, yeah, P-E-G, peg. Uh, oh. That's what we call in India. I don't know what they call them here. It's a measure of how much you want to like, like shot. Say, I guess we would say a shot. It's a shot, right. Right. So one shot, two shots. Okay. So I didn't know what that meant because I belonged to a family where there was no drinks at all. And in the society also, I had not seen anybody drinking the kind of society that we lived in. But that, but at your wedding, did he wasn't there drinking at the wedding? Yeah. But the, normally the grooms don't drink. Really? Yeah. Okay. Especially the day. Especially the day. Because now what happens, not like in America... There, all the functions happen in respective houses. There's nothing joint. Oh. So whatever we had to do three years, three days before the wedding was my people, my family. They were doing their thing in their family. And it was only the wedding day when the vows have to take place that we all get together as one. And the, the groom comes on a horse. Um, so normally the groom will not drink. Even after yeah. the ceremony, it's a party, a reception? Yeah, there is a reception, but you know what? In his family, the other brothers did not drink at home. They were all uh, very respectful of the father. And I'm sure that he did not drink at home also, according okay. to me. Uh, maybe a peg. I, I don't know. I didn't see him drinking. So maybe a shot. I have no idea. So you had no uh, idea about the drinking until that night where he, he got yes. drunk. Right. Wow. Yes, yes. Um, and so he came home and he started to instigate by talking about, you know, my wedding and my parents and what do they think they are? They, they think they're smart people. What do you think about yourself? And, you know, started to name call everybody. And I was like, why are you doing that? And he stood up and gave me one strong slap on my face, which I was shocked. I didn't know that a, my cheek was slapped, you know, it was so hot and, uh, on fire that I took a second out of shock to come out of shock and think, Oh my God, he slapped me. Right. And he said, um, and he said, so, Oh, so you are going to place your father um, more, higher than me. And you can't do that. You know, I am the God almighty. So he was a typical man from a patriarch society where the man is given the power and the control of a woman and the woman is there to serve. That's a role that has been told from time immemorial in a patriarch society, whether it be India or any other country. Um, so yeah, I was shocked. And but there was, was no, I don't mean to interrupt you, but there was no, it sounds like there was no hint of that, that he no. felt that way in during the courting period up until the wedding because like you said his first question to you ever was what are your aspirations so yes. um he really kept up the charade uh for a long time yeah that that's hard i mean 
So those six months to tell you, Jason, he was not in New Delhi. So he just came to see me twice on two okay. occasions in those six months. And that too for like a few hours. Not that he came and we met continuously for two, three days. No, he would come on a vacation on like three or four days and he'll come to see me one time and that too over a coffee. We never had even the dinner together. So I don't know if he was hiding things or, you know, he was smart to do those things. I don't know till date. I never thought about it. I never right. went there. So so when that happened, I was very fearful that he's going to slap me again. Uh, and so I just, uh, you know, picked myself from that sofa and I went into the bathroom and I just shut myself and then later on came to the bed and covered myself with the with the covers. Uh, so that was my first experience of uh, that. But then the next day he got up and he pleaded and he was in my feet, like a typical classical case. Right. Um, he cried and he said, you know, excuse me and pardon me and I will never do that again. It was right. under the yeah, influence of the alcohol. And I really thought that he may be right because I never saw him drinking. So maybe he drank too much and he doesn't he didn't mean to do it. You thought maybe it was just a one off occurrence yes yes and uh, you know i was normal um and then again it happened and then again it happened and every it's a cycle time, right it's, it's a, a cycle. cycle it's yeah. a cycle yes and then how it's long did cycle. it take for you to, to realize that and understand that this this is not going to stop this is this is who he is and this is what my life has become so in the by the third month of marriage, um, I got pregnant, and uh, that's the day again he hit me when it was announced that I was I could be pregnant. It was not yet confirmed, but my symptoms. My the neighbor's woman came and she said, "Oh, she could be pregnant." Um, that was the day again he hit me a lot. I would say hitting his legs into my stomach and saying, "I don't want this child." And again, drunk and everything. So that's the time. It was a case of a threatened abortion, they call it. I mean, it was not an abortion, but uh, there was a threat to the fetus because he was hitting me and I bled a little. So uh, after that, you know, I went to my, uh, I went to Delhi. I told him that I would like to be with my parents and my, not him, but the neighbors. I told her to tell him that I needed to go. Um, so I came back, uh, but he told me to be with, to meet his family first, to go to his house first, and then only I could go to my parents. So on the way, I kept thinking about it, and I thought, I still do not know my my future. I really do not know what's going to happen. So let me go to his family first. And I went to his family and then came back to my family. And, uh, you know, today when I think, I feel that, what I did was wrong. I should not have done that. I did not speak up. I did not tell my parents everything. I hid from my dad, especially because he was a heart patient and he had some minor strokes. And I was very worried if he listens to this, he is going to have some heart issues. And if something happens with him, that guilt will not let me live the rest right. of my life. You didn't want to upset them. Yeah. So, you know, I just told them that you know, it's it's not great. It's not going great. You know, um, they knew about the threatened abortion. And I told them that I slipped from a staircase and, you know, all those things. Uh, and again, he came. 
after a week, he again came and he cried and cried. And he just said that, you know, one more time, one more time. That one more time never, you know, it became endless for me. Um, and that is where I really tell people now when I advise, I say that give them one chance only. Give them one chance. And if they agree to take medical help and a therapy help, then give them one more chance. Uh, they have it. to acknowledge, I, I find too, that you have to, right, if they acknowledge that there's a problem and that this is not a good yeah. situation, then, right, right, you always give somebody a second chance. Um, but yeah. they have to acknowledge that and take accountability, right? Yes, yes. But, so, you know, he did, whenever I talked to him about going to Alcoholic Anonymous, going to therapist, and he would always say that I was the one who needed to go to a doctor. I was the course. one who was who was crazy. The problem was and you, was, right? Yeah. So, you know, when you read the book, I I don't know if you've read it fully, but in the initial uh, chapters, not the, ch the chapters have not yet started, but my daughter has given her message also saying that, you know, they don't only uh, kill their own lives, but their, their wives and their children's. Yes. More than that, children. So, yeah, I mean, I wish he would have done that because he was a bright man, but he deteriorated into a total vegetable. You know, he, yes, I mean, I I feel it's a loss of a life. Yes. No, it, it's really sad, a sad story. But we don't have much more time uh for today. So tell everybody kind of the short version of how you got out of this uh, bad situation that you found yourself in with your, with your children and what happened. Yes. Right. So I had to escape, but how was a big question as to how, because he threatened me all the time that either he'll kill me or he'll commit suicide or something will he do, he'll do the, to the children. So wherever I went, he came after me. That is another classic sign of these people. Um, and then, you know, as God would have it, my faith in universe started to bring me angels and mentors and collaborators who started to give me direction as to how and what you should do. So the I won't talk about all the angels, but one of them who turned my life was who said that you need to be financially independent. And I said, with three toddlers, how can I go out? And she said, don't make excuses. You can hire a nanny, you can hire a servant, do whatever it takes, but start to work because then you'll become, you'll pick up your confidence back, you will meet people and you'll have some money to think about what you have to do with the rest of your life. And that's what exactly I did. I could not sleep that night and I drew a, literally a pen and paper in my hand and I drew a roadmap where I said, okay, fine, I'm here today, I want to be there tomorrow and these are the milestones I will have to cover. Yes. Because in any case, the court was not ready to give me my children till they turned 18. So I had to be with him if I was to stay back in India. And so the best was to just start to transform myself from a victim. So my belief in self was one of the tools uh, that I had. I started to develop more, um, you know, all the universal techniques that we have, self-care, self-preservation, self-passion, compassion, uh, self-discipline. I mean, those are the things I started, the techniques that I started to uh, practice very, very seriously. And um, rewiring was one big such tool that helped me a lot. 
and then creative visualization where I would sit in a corner and visualize the nature and the beauty that the God has created for us and create some space in my head that way uh, and kind of have some time to think about myself. Um, so that's what I did. And Belief in Universe brought me all these angels, I told you. And then there was a time that I started the, my third tool, which was Belief in Spirituality, because even... Uh, when I divorced him in 2003, I came to U.S. in 2000. Um, and uh, in 2003, I divorced him. And uh, it took me just three months, you know. When I filed for divorce, within three months, I was in Connecticut. It was done. I was happy. I was li at liberty. I jumped. I was right. like a bird in the sky. And uh, that was the time when I thought that my soul soul was still broken. And I had lost it to him. So I had to build that soul and I started my journey towards spiritualism. So the three tools, belief in self, belief in universe, belief in spiritualism are the core tools that have helped my escape and my coming back, getting my identity back, getting my dignity back and becoming a thriver today that you see. Yeah, no, that is an amazing story. And I'm so happy that you you shared, and I know we just touched on really the tip of the iceberg with it, but that's why we're going to tell people where they can find your book so they can really read it because it, I did read it and it's a really in-depth um, portrayal of the journey that you did take. But what stands out to me, Kanchar, is a couple of things, which is what I want to emphasize for everybody listening too, that one, you had a plan, right? You didn't just to, you know, no. say, all right, fate will take me where I need to go and or it's going to happen by itself. No, you 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 created a strategy and you had a plan and you set goals and the milestones to reach those goals. That's number one. Right. That's so important. I think, you know, have a plan. Number two, you call them angels. You you didn't do it alone. Right. And 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 people who may feel that they're in a situation uh, or a scenario like you were. Uh, trapped um, or in an abusive marriage, you can't and you're not expected to do it alone. Find people to help support you on your journey um, because yeah. you need that. And and supporting yourself with the right team around you is essential, right? Wouldn't you say that? Yeah. yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, as for society is concerned, I don't think you can depend on them so much. You are alone, pretty much alone that way. And that is my another message to the society saying that, you know, being a survivor, I want the other survivors to step out and talk about their victories so that the society knows that the victims need them and their help and their collaboration. So, yeah, I mean, you are alone, but not alone. If right. you have the faith coming with you, you are not alone. The God is with you. No, right. And, and, I'm not, I'll be honest, I'm not the most spiritual person on the planet, but your mindset and, and your willingness to, to believe in something is, is so helpful and essential and really can make a difference. I believe that. So right. Kanchar, your book, Leaving, How I Set Myself Free from an Abusive Marriage, where can people read this? It is available on most of the online stores like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Goodreads. But you can also visit my website. It's www.kanchanbhaskar, K-A-N-C-H-A-N, 
bhaskar.com and all the details are there the navigation buttons are there my social media buttons are there uh, you can know more about me um, and uh, just you know uh, before i i go off i would like to say it's a story of hope and desire transformation and empowerment and transcendence into a thriver so definitely it's a very hopeful story Yes. And if it can happen to you, it can happen to anybody. And and that's the message, the message of hope and inspiration. So if you're listening to this and you find yourself in an abusive marriage or relationship, understand that there is a way out um, and, and there is a path uh, to a better place. Kanchar, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. And it was great to have you on the show. Thank you, Jason. It was great. Thank you. All right, another episode in the books. I hope you enjoyed it and got some valuable information and inspiration, if nothing else, from Kanshin. So if, again, you haven't subscribed to the podcast, podcast, please do so you get all new episodes when they come out. Also, if you like what you hear, please take a minute on Apple Podcasts. Please leave a kind review. It does help spread the um, word about the podcast to other listeners of podcasts out there looking for divorce resources. Also, if you're looking for help for your personal divorce, email me, jason at jasonlavoy.com, or check out my website where you can schedule a free complimentary um, strategy session, and I can tell you, uh, hopefully point you in the right direction and see if some divorce coaching would be the right thing for your situation. In the meantime, all I'm going to ask you to do is be strong, act confident, and stay positive. I'm Jason Lavoy, a.k.a. The Divorce Resource Guy, and I'll be seeing you real soon.